Bet you wish you were here. All right, guys, we come to the point in the podcast now where I have to make a grave, grave confession. So last year there, I'd say, I no, was it this year? It was probably this year. I was invited on a podcast called Shared Ireland, right? Now, I knew of the podcast anyway. It's been going for a few years. I was listening to it for a long time. It's run by a man by the name of Niall Keenan. Now, I say run, he's got a team behind it, but he's kind of the front man. He's the interviewer for, I think, most of the interviews. He is the founder and chairperson of Shared Ireland. Now, the man is an absolute gentleman. I subsequently actually met the man in person and we've actually become friends. And I, and I'm, and you know, I, I'd use that term. I'd be careful with that term, like, because, you know, there's no point in kind of storming around saying you're all my friends and then your door is shut on Christmas morning when someone's coming over looking for milk. Now, he lives in Tyrone, so, like, that, you know, with the help of God, he'll never knock on my door looking for sugar in Cork. But if he did, not a bother. And I have to say now, guys... We've actually become good old chums, good old buddies. We're on opposite sides of the island, but we keep in touch. I've met his absolutely beautiful parents, two absolutely wonderful human beings. But then, just to get to the sad but then, I ripped off his podcast. I just ripped it off. I ripped it off. I listened to it and I thought to myself, I can do this and I'll throw a few jokes in at the start. And uh, and that's it, like, because he has all the guests lined up. He's done all the donkey work. I mean, he's been at it for years. He's built up all the contacts. I was like, I could swoop in now and just do all this again, like, and just add my own little kind of bits and pieces at the start and the end, get a sponsor for it, hopefully, and, you know, become a big star, like, end up with my own talk show now in America or something and leave him completely behind, like. So that's what I did. The only bit of confusion is that I thought he gave me his blessing <laughs> to do that but as it turns out I don't think he did and that's where you join the conversation uh, with Niall Keenan I hope you enjoy it my friends I've had a beautiful day with somebody that I would consider a friend of mine a wonderful man by the name of Niall Keenan who runs a fantastic podcast called Shared Ireland which I'll be telling you all about in due course of this podcast and it's a podcast that I've openly ripped off as soon as I appeared and I thought, well, I could do this, but with jokes. And I asked Niall, would that be okay? And bizarrely, he said, he said, yeah, to that. So Niall, would you, would I you said mind? yes. I don't recall that at all, <laughs> to be honest with you. When did this happen? In fact, I think you suggested to me, and I might be dreaming this up now because I am a dreamer. Clearly. That, uh, <laughs> that I should do a podcast in our own shared Ireland stuff would just add in some jokes at the end and that would be my own thing. No, did that happen or? No, but what I do distinctly <laughs> remember saying is, Tag, how would you like to do one of our podcasts as in being a presenter? So yeah, you just. Uh, <laughs> All right, mm-hmm. okay. okay. Okay, I've got that totally wrong, guys. But anyway, look, we better drive on. <laughs> so could you, t- I mean, I know you very well and I love you, but for anyone who doesn't know you, could you tell us succinctly, so 10, 20, maybe 30 minutes talk. Thanks for giving me the definition of succinctly. <laughs> Who Niall Keenan is. First of all, thank you for um, the invite. It's very much appreciated. I kind of feel, as I alluded to earlier, that I've got um, imposter syndrome because I am a nobody. But thank you anyway. I suppose Niall Keenan is a fairly uncomplicated sort of a character, or at least I try to be, but that all depends on who, who you're asking. <laughs> um... 
I'm sure, as you are aware, people that don't know you or maybe have a perception of you can at times be um, castigated as this and that. It's it's kind of one of my bugbears in life, which you believe that get to know the person and then make your opinion of them. Mm. But I'd say I'm generally a pretty happy-go-lucky sort of a person. I would like to think I've got a good attitude and um, try and treat people the way that I'd want to be treated and... um, yeah. Perfect. Can you tell, for people that don't know Shared Ireland, in your own words, tell us about that the Shared Ireland podcast. The Shared Ireland podcast came about, I think this is our third year, and I suppose what we want to do, and by the way, there's a very small group of us behind the scenes of like-minded people from all over the island. We've got a member from Dublin, one from Cork, would you believe it? Belfast, I'm Tyrone-based, and we've got a member in living in Donegal. So we have got a good geographical spread. It came about basically tagged to um, further the conversation about constitutional change on this island. What we have thankfully succeeded in doing is getting a broad spectrum of voices, um, whether it be from academia, business, political and also civic society to, I suppose, we're encouraging everyone. We've got this hashtag join the conversation and it's about I suppose if we have learnt anything from the mistakes of Brexit, and I know we'll probably get into this later, fail to prepare, prepare to fail. So why not have this conversation now so that I can listen to your views or listen to whoever's views and they can maybe hear mine too. And while we won't always agree on everything, but I suppose another mantra we have is learning to disagree respectfully. Yes. So Shared Ireland is all about encouraging people to have a conversation, even though we won't always see eye to eye, but at least stop skulking about and then, uh, you know, in bars. It's not an ugly subject anymore to talk about constitutional change. You know, them days are gone and now it's mainstream and thankfully it's doing pretty well. I would know, for instance, that a member of a loyalist paramilitary group effectively tried to take your life at one point in time. What happened or what's going on in your thinking that then in this period in your life you're actually openly reaching out to loyalists and unionists and members of the PUL community okay I suppose this is something I've never spoke about by the way I suppose the 28th of January on 1993 was a day that in many ways changed my life but unfortunately it changed Martin McNamee's life and that of his wife and two young children as he died in the bomb attack that you referred to. A UVF statement on the six o'clock news said that I was their intended target. Looking back 28 years on from that fateful day, it seems unreal, but one of the most unreal things about that is 28 years later, the authorities have yet to take a statement from me and have yet to investigate what actually happened that day. Thinking back, you know, them days back in the late 80s, early 90s, they nearly didn't take a flinch out of you, would you believe it? And I know that doesn't sound real now, even for me, saying that, listening to myself saying it. But like, we were living in a constant state of war nearly. And somehow your psyche became hardened and used to that because it's all you ever grew up with. But, you know, I can only speak about my community, which was predominantly a nationalist and Republican community. But like, we were used day and daily living with state-sponsored collusion and murder happening on a daily basis. And you became immune to it. Of course, I'm very mindful that these events happen to all sides in the conflict. I suppose getting back to your question, why am I, using your words, reaching out to 
at one stage, potentially, the people that maybe even tried. It's because it's like everything in life. As you get older, you like to think you get a little bit more wisdom. Don't know if you get any wiser, but, uh, you know, you, you, you do have a different perspective on things. And I realize that I don't want my children, but particularly my grandchildren and future generations, to ever experience anything like what I came through, what Martin McNamee and his family came through, and obviously people listening to this podcast potentially have came through. So it's on that basis that if we can add any sort of positivity to our future, well then I feel as if there's a moral obligation on me to reach out the hand, to try and understand somebody's mindset that did back in the day want to set out to destroy someone's life for whatever reason. So, you know... I don't know if that answers your question. Of course it all. does, yeah. And can I just say, just it's powerful listening to you say that and thank you for, if that's the first time that you said that, then I thank you and I feel humble that you would say it to me. I suppose it's not that I never, you know, I've spoken about it privately, family and friends and acquaintances as you get to know them, but um, there's never been a reason for me to speak publicly about it. I probably won't ever speak publicly about it again. <laughs> but um, Because this time has been such a disaster, like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah you've, popped me, you've, you've popped me back years mentally here. <laughs> um, no, funny, funny enough, I, I actually um, I got a correspondence from my solicitor, um, actually, would you believe it, this week, saying that um, my case, taking the MOD and um, chief constable to court, um, it's... It's gathering pace, but um, yeah, it only took 28 years. So listen, sure, wow. if it happens before, sometimes before the new millennium, sure, it'll be be worth waiting for. I mean, I just, I, like, I don't want to patronize you when I say that for somebody who's been through that experience, that you're actively reaching out and actively seeking a different future for your kids and your, your grandkids. I just think that if you are taking those kinds of risks and reaching out in that way for what you've been through. Hopefully people who are warring on Twitter from the two different sides could do the same if they haven't actually been through any of these things. But I just think that it, there's something very profound in it and I just think you're, you're to be commended. I appreciate that. I suppose the way I see it is if we have a new dispensation, ultimately everyone will benefit from that. So, um, you know, there's people playing tremendous jobs of work behind the scenes, in front of the scenes. Most of our politicians, I would like to think, have their heart in the right place. But, you know, for me, any major change in the world has always come from civic society. Yes. We have no skin. You know, we're not looking your vote next election. Mm. You know, we're not held to a certain party political line. And I know we'll touch on this as we go along. But like, you know, that's why the establishment of a citizens assembly in order to give us some legs to put something concrete in place, to give us all the opportunity to come around this table and plan, prepare and discuss for our future. That's why it's vital that both governments, but in particular the Irish government, step up to the mark here and uh, for once in the last hundred years and say, right, now's the time that we need to do something for all our futures. Lovely. Actually, as we're touching on what's incumbent on the South to do, I might just go to that question. In terms of building bridges, what, in your opinion, as a Northern Nationalist, can the South do? Well, I suppose, first of all, I'm going to reference southern government here. I guess for too many years the Irish citizens living here in the north simply have been left behind and forgotten by successive Irish governments by the way, not just the current one. I'm going to be honest, we should feel ashamed. Simple as that. We as nationalists kind of always look towards Dublin for our guidance as opposed to my next door neighbour here who may come from a unionist tradition would naturally look towards London for their guidance. But unfortunately every time we looked towards Dublin. Dublin looked away 
obviously, I'm only 51, but the union is here. This is actually the 100th year of it. So, like, I haven't experienced the whole 100 years of the union, but I've experienced slightly over half of it now. It's very hard to quantify and it's very hard to put into words and describe to someone that maybe is listening to our conversation today, not from the North. That it's a feeling that you don't have any stability nearly. It's a feeling that nearly like drowning and you're, you're reaching out for help, <laughs> but there's nobody there to help you, you know. Because, as I said, our unionist neighbours look towards London and London seemed to be always there for them. Created this statelet and was gerrymandering went on, you know, where the Catholic representation, even if they did, outvote somebody, like they redrawn the boundaries so that we could never have or I suppose, equality. You know, but moving on, I guess, this current coalition government has, in fairness to them, established the shared island unit. And this is to be welcomed. But we need to see something tangible now, Tag. Yes, pledging money to border communities that have been left in the cold for this past 100 years is a start. But they must now tackle the big question. And that big question is on the future of the island. And that includes the whole island not just 26 counties. I'm as Irish as you are, and, you know, vice versa. I also welcome, uh, you know, new voices to this current conversation from the, the current coalition government, especially those from certain political parties, that the same voices not all that long ago said now is not the time to be having a constitutional debate. I always, to be honest with you, found that rich coming from somebody maybe sitting in the leafy suburbs of Dublin 4. But as I say, better late than never. Welcome to the party, boys. In terms of conversations that you've had with unionists and loyalists then, right? So we'll just touch on Brexit, because I know you're not very keen on answering Brexit questions, but look, at the end of the day, it's a bloody Brexit podcast, so just go with it, yeah? (laughs) In terms of your conversations with your colleagues and what you describe as your friends in the unionist community here, who've spoken on Shared Ireland, and I'd refer people to those Shared Ireland podcasts, which are fantastic. What has been the effect of Brexit on their political stance? Would they view Brexit as a disaster for political unionism? Okay, first of all, you're right. I detest (laughs) talking about Brexit. (laughs) I I honestly can't think of a more negative subject that that anybody could talk about. Because what has it brought to this island? Doom and gloom. And God love the people in England. God love their... They want to get out of Europe and they're effectively still in it. Yeah, it's a very negative subject. However... Um, it's a Brexit podcast, so yes, <laughs> we'll talk about it. Well, it's actually a in a post-Brexit world podcast, but yeah, continue. Okay. <laughs> well, listen, any any uh, people from the PUL community that I would have a discussion with, and people are going to say, of course, you're going to say this, Niall, but I genuinely, sincerely mean this. Nobody that I have spoke to from that community thinks that Brexit was a good idea. In fact, most of the people, and this is a hard one to get your head around, how did the vote actually pass? But anyway, most Mm. of them said that they actually didn't vote for Brexit. But when you think about it, the people here in the North, the majority of people did not vote for Mm. Brexit. Same as the people in Scotland and Wales. You know, this thing was pushed through by the population of London alone, probably, which is understandable. It's a UK-wide vote. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm an Irishman. Didn't want it. Didn't vote for it. But yet, no, I have to suffer with the consequences of it. And so do my unionist friends and neighbours. They have to suffer the consequences of And the true extent of this has not been seen yet. But I think even at this stage that the DUP can see that they've backed themselves into the corner here and there's no escape hatch. And they really have to just double down now. 
because like let's be honest with you it'd be a bit ironic if they put their hands up and said okay guys we've made a mistake here us and Jacob Reese Mogg and Cambridge Analytica and the dark money that we fired at this whole Brexit campaign was a mistake folks they're not going to do it like are they? they're not but can I push you there now on that topic right because I spoke to Danny Morrison and Jerry Adams who both said the Brexit has been a disaster and I pushed them to say like as an Irish Republican though would you not say that it is a little bit of a gift horse as well because your life's work in many ways is partly about reunifying this country and hasn't Brexit furthered that cause would you say if I could put you on the spot to answer that question directly, yes or no, thank you. Absolutely. Sorry, that wasn't a yes or no. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's refreshing because I interviewed James Dornan from the SNP the other day as well and he said it's been a disaster for Scotland on many levels but in terms of my political aspirations and my party, of course it's been a positive thing. So yeah, tell us a little bit about that if you don't mind. Okay, where do you start and where do you stop this question? So, um, <laughs> to use a word that thankfully you explained for me succinctly, um, <laughs> And I I took hardly any time to explain it. I I guess pre-2016, purely speaking about my passion, and that's Irish reunification, shared Ireland, call it what you want, united Ireland. I guess while we were actively encouraging people to join the conversation, and it was an active conversation within my community, but it wasn't until the farcical setup of Brexit until that came around that people started saying, oh, hold on a minute, I'm now no longer an EU citizen. So I haven't got that right anymore. Or that right that I used to have, I need a bit more clarification on. People took so many things for granted, being involved in a huge economy and the entitlement of their children, the Erasmus programme, and even silly things about insurance companies like having to put green cards and stuff, I guess, to go into a different jurisdiction, namely being if I want to travel from Lifford to Ballabuffet, you know, like it's madness, like all the wee things that we didn't think about. But anyway, so people started questioning, okay, how can we become EU (laughs) members again? And the EU loud and clear said listen if Ireland wants to rejoin there's one way to do that unite your country it's very simple Scotland wasn't offered that olive branch from the EU so if Scotland gets NDRF2 pushed through which I have no doubt that they will that the EU have not given them a pledge but they have with the North that we will be a, a member if we choose to go down that road whenever we get our new shared Ireland so listen it's brought the whole conversation mainstream I suppose that's ultimately what I'm saying here, Tag, is that, or I suppose it's in around that time that see different groups popping up like Ireland's Future, Shared Ireland, Think 32 on social media and whatnot. The conversation was out there in people's faces, you know, encouraging people to give their opinions. And listen, that can only be a good thing. It costs absolutely nothing to have a conversation. And I'm actually going to quote Joel Keyes, somebody that we had on recently in the Shared Ireland podcast. You know, like, and it's such a simple thing, but it's true. It costs nothing to have a conversation. And the whole Brexit thing, getting back to that, that was potentially, you know, that, that has done more damage to the union than anything prior to it has done. It just seems like loyalists are potentially casting Northern Nationalists the Southern Irish government and the EU as the bogeymen who are out to get them. But is the plot twist that the bogeyman is actually and always has been Westminster? At the minute, I think loyalism has fallen out with the Irish government, she said. Definitely fallen out with Boris. Don't think they're in great terms with the American administration. Clearly want to get divorced from the EU. Not that long ago, they fell out amongst themselves in the DUP. 
there was three leaders in six weeks, Arlene, Jeffrey now and Edwin in between that. So I suppose the question I would pose to anybody is what will it take to keep them happy? Nothing really seems to be their version of utopia. I read on your website in one of your blogs that you feel for them in that regard, that you feel for loyalism because this is the position that it's in right now, which I thought was a profound thing to read on a human level. I was actually going to say that before you brought it up, but I held myself back because sometimes I feel as if somebody hears that from me, it could come across as patronising. But seeing that you did bring it up, I cannot emphasise how, how much I mean that, is that I actually would be concerned. And the reason why I'd be so concerned is because while constitutional change is certainly not inevitable, but it's highly likely. And getting back to why I'd be concerned for members of the PEL community, if they don't engage and try to shape our new future and represent their people after all, well then, it's not my really responsibility to do that on their behalf as a nationalist. It's their responsibility to do that. And like, I couldn't imagine what's important to somebody from a different community from me because I'd only be guessing. That's why they need to get around this table and have this conversation, enter the conversation to ensure that what they hold dear in life is going to be enshrined in law. That, and again, sure, I have no idea what that is. I can guess, but that's all it will be is a guess. So like, when I say I'd be concerned, I mean it that get around the table before it's too late because the constitutional train has firmly left the station. Like I just think it's worth noting that that I read it and it's something that didn't come up when we were chatting earlier but I just thought that again that was profound that it felt like it was a genuine human response to people from the other community that you weren't always the best of buddies shall we put it that way but on a human level you feel for them right now and it's something that again people would probably take the piss or slate me or say that it's disingenuous for me to say that, but the original loyalism sketch that I did that did quite well, which probably brought about the reason why we're sitting in the room right now, there's no venom in what I was doing there. I was actually commenting on the absurd position that loyalism finds itself in now, which is fidelity and brotherhood with this brother that is literally throwing him under the bus to get Brexit done, whatever that means, you know? So I'm just saying for both of us, really, I don't notice... I just think that our hearts are in the right place. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and clearly, you know, I can visualise certain people at, at this precise moment, like pulling their hair out, saying, who are them two trying to kid? But listen, sir, you know, that's, that's okay. Everybody's entitled to their opinion. Lovely. So there's a couple of more Brexit questions that you'll be delighted oh, about. Yippee. <laughs> hey, guys. At this point, I ask Niall, you know, that same old question again. Did the Brexiteers forget about the North of Ireland or were they deliberately trying to get rid of it? And I just thought I'd spare you another iteration of that. No, I don't think it was an oversight or I don't think it was planned. They simply forgot that we are part of the UK because like, we, we don't enter their mental thinking on a day-to-day basis. We really don't. Like, what do we contribute to them? It's all about, from a unionist point of view here, what we can get from them. They don't be sitting there thinking about us. And I think that's quite clear over this past hundred years. And it's quite clear the way Boris has literally thrown the DUP under his big red bus several <laughs> times this past two or three years. Like, you know, they've been let down time and time again. You're quite right. This whole thing was driven by English nationalism. Again, nobody believed that the vote would actually pass. And I think it was, you know, people weren't actually treating it with, with any real sense of danger, probably. But it just goes to show you, in around that time, Donald Trump was on the march in America. Boris was lurking behind Theresa at that time. There was a lot of change and unrest, you know, across the globe. And um, it's one of them things that happened. Anybody I say I speak to now really regrets it. Most of them say didn't vote for it. And that's from both sides of the community here. Nigel Farage, like, you know, let's be honest with you, you know, he's, I don't know, I'll just leave it like that. Um, <laughs> does, 
does does anybody really take him seriously? Like you know. Yeah. But listen, it's a legacy that I, I'm sure he's you know it's mm. going to be left with him. Obviously, David Cameron is the man that started the whole Brexit and just you know. left left the scene. Yeah, there you go, folks. I'll put this into legislation. You can work away. I'm away to the Bahamas. Good luck. Best of luck. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get more positive. So you know. I feel, and I recently took part in an Ireland's Future event and I thought those conversations about talking about the kind of Ireland that we want, and you've obviously been doing this for years, but I'd like to hear the person behind, I know there's people, but, you know, the front man of Shared Ireland to tell our listeners, what's the Ireland that you want to see then? People's going to be fed up listening to me say this, but I make no apologies for it because it's the only vision of a new Shared Ireland that I want. And that is one where the constitution in 26 counties is ripped up. Same here in the north. We have the desire and the ability to dream, dare to dream. We look around the world, for example, if we're talking about health, maybe look at Sweden, their health system seems okay. Maybe look at New Zealand, Australia, whatever. And we say, yeah, we can pick a bit of that and a bit of that and put it together. No, that's what our health system is going to look like. But again, this is what a citizens' assembly would do. So how are we going to pay for this health system now? We do the same with our police force. Wouldn't be on Garda Shikana, it wouldn't be the PSNI. It'd be a police force representative of the people of society. We all could have, I guess, faith in. We'd be saying the same about our education system. Is secular education the, the way that we want to continue? Integrated education? You know, I don't know. I'm not saying, but all I'm saying is this. We have the ability to change it. We have the ability to be whatever we want to be. It's within our hands. And this society will benefit us all, regardless of your skin colour, your sexual orientation, your fucking bank balance, or your political aspirations. This is all now about not wrapping ourselves in a trickler or, or the Union Jack. We're more educated than that now, aren't we? We're more advanced than that. We've already lived through civil war in 26 counties. We've lived through the recent conflicts. No one has the troubles here. Like, surely we want a better society. If not for ourselves, but for our kids and, as I say, our future generations. So to answer your question and sum it up, I guess, we need to dare to dream. We need to be creative and don't just settle for the same old. Let us, as Irish people or British people, whatever you want to identify yourself as, but citizens of this island, let us, I guess, be a shining example around the world of how a small country with a population between five and six million very small, can come together and come out of a conflict. And like South Africa, shown around the world as a shining example of how to deal with conflict resolution. And so have we in many ways. But the reality of it is something different when you live here. But, you know, we have the capacity if the desire is there. And it's very simple. So it's not about one party controlling everything. It's not about a Republican agenda or a nationalist agenda. It's not about lording it over somebody the way that others may have perceived it was done to them for the past hundred years. It's about equality. It's about people's rights. It's about quality of life. So listen, I don't know if that's answered your question, but that's my vision. I mean, in many ways, it's such a lovely, positive message to end on. I should nearly end the podcast there, but I won't. I'll keep asking you questions. More Brexit questions, please. <laughs> More Brexit, please. No, that's wonderful, man. There'll be certain people that you will never reach. Would you Would you accept that or would you believe that? Are there certain unionists or loyalists who would never vote for United Ireland under any circumstances? 
The same way as there are certain nationalists and republicans that will never accept the existence of the union. Exactly. So there's always going to be that, we'll just yeah. say, 10% on both sides. So what about the ones on the fence then? They're, they're called lion's footers, yeah. <laughs> what can we do to, or what can, yeah, what can we do, I suppose, to, I mean, you've already touched on it, but what would the New Ireland do differently to make them feel more welcome? Yeah, I suppose the way that I would see that tag is there's the job of work to do now. By the way, not alone for the people sitting on the fence, as you put it, but also, you know, let's be honest about it. My community, including me, wants to know what this new Ireland's going to yeah. look like. The same way as the unions community. So it's not unique to any one community. No. We all want to know. But what? how are we going to ever find this out? So is it too complicated to form a citizens' assembly? And I'm sorry if this word is going to be repetitive and has been. But like, you know, in the 26 counties, Southern government have demonstrated already in your not that long history that different citizens' assemblies have already paved the way. The abortion um, law and all the rest of it, but like, I'm not going to get into that. But all I'm really saying about a citizens' assembly, it's a very valuable and useful tool. And what bigger question will any citizen in Ireland ever have in their lifetime talking about the constitutional future? If there was ever a need for one, now is the time. So that, you know, we've got a job of work to reach out to hand to everyone. Because I do not agree with that philosophy that others would say, oh, you'll never change their mind or whatever. No, there's an onus in me to be sincere. There's an onus in me to paint a picture for everyone. Now, if you're not prepared to drink the cup of water that I'm offering you, that's okay, but at least I'll offer it to you. It's your choice what you do with it after that. I suppose I be coming at it from that basis, is that we need to be genuine in, in, in our outreach. Uh, but what does outreach look like? It means having these conversations that you and I are having, only having them with the PUL community and me asking them what's your fears what's your aspirations what's your concerns what would you love to see happening if the inevitable did happen for them and there was a United Ireland tell me how I can ensure that you would feel comfortable in that this isn't going to happen overnight click your finger stuff this is going to take years in order to I guess bring trust back into the conversation for me there's always been this kind of theme lurking under the surface that people don't trust each other here and that's understandable by the way and it's nobody's fault but you know we have to learn to be sincere and hopefully that sincerity is recognized by the person we're talking to and they can give that back to us and you know small steps listen i don't know sincerity is one thing for me i guess is, is the main one but also dare to dream don't be afraid just because maybe 20, 30 years ago, this isn't how it was supposed to be done. You know, let's break that mould. Let's be creative here. And I think, you know, somebody said to me once, why not have a conversation with somebody that you don't normally have a conversation with, meaning your your political opponent? And the moment that you think that they're being insincere, stop the conversation, of course, but try it for a day. Try, you know, walking a mile in someone else's shoes. Try and look at life through their lenses because it can give you a different perspective and um, it mightn't just be as bad as you would think it would be. That's great. And it's just as you were saying there, just to touch on it, that you're, I was going into the Ireland's future event, for instance, thinking to myself, well, I think a lot of aspects of the jurisdiction that I live in needs fixing. I think housing in the jurisdiction I live in is broken. I think the health service is broken. And just listening to you, and I'm not putting words in your mouth, but I think to go into discussions about what a new Ireland would be like, 
being sincere, but being honest enough to say as well that lots of things are broken in our jurisdiction without casting any aspersions on the jurisdiction that you're living in. And I'm going to stop saying jurisdiction pretty soon. But that let's build something new together. Like, And I felt that energy in the room that day. And speaking to you, I feel it again now, which is moving away from this idea of this state here is the one that we love and it's all the culture and then the government is perfect and things work tickety-boo. Let's bolt this other bit on and it'll be like the fucking wall coming down in Berlin and it'll all be... It's a completely different situation and we have an opportunity to build something that we've never had in Ireland before. And the final point I'll touch on, which you've already said as well, is that like, it seems to me that there's a kind of a partition in the South as well between the haves and the have-nots. That's always been the case in Ireland. There's people that, that are doing okay and there's people that aren't. And I don't think we do enough to look after the people that aren't doing well. There's no point in building a so-called New Ireland that doesn't address that fundamental problem with Ireland that's always been there, I think, which is just inequality. That's why, uh, you know, I started off by making that point. In the New Ireland, the Constitution in the South would need to be ripped up because that's certainly not anything I want to be a part of. Simple as that. There's also, of course, we need to start busting a few myths because that's all they are, you know, about... You have to pay 50 or 80 euros every time you want to consult your GP in the South. Like, that's not technically true. The same can be said, it's not technically true that they, you have to wait 18 months or two years and up here and dealing with the NHS to get an operation. None of the two systems are right. But sure, there's nobody arguing that they are right. You know, we're all, I think, agreed that we can do better. So it's about just realising, of course we can do better. There's nothing stopping us. But the only thing that seems to be stopping people is the idea, that principle that, you know, I'm Irish, no, I'm British. No, you know, we're, we're all neighbours. It's as simple as that. We're neighbours. We've all got so much in common. We all want best for us, our family, our friends. You know, we, we all want more money in our pockets. Let's be honest about it. We all want a health service that is free at the point of entry. But a health service that actually works and delivers. We all want a police force that we can be proud of and turn to in any event and know that that police force is going to come out and treat your case as seriously as somebody living three miles down the road that maybe has a different skin colour or a different nationality or a different political view. We want an infrastructure. Like, we've got a, an international airport. That's what the title of it's called anyway. It doesn't have a rail system. It's just a, an anthem, like, outside Belfast, you know? Like, it's, it's a joke. If you told anybody that, your so-called capital doesn't have a train station from its international airport. It's, uh, it honestly is laughable. We've got young people emigrating, leaving the country because there isn't an economy here for them in many cases. We've got a, a suicide epidemic, and I'm using that word deliberately, particularly in the North, that uh, is unrivaled in most European countries. That's not an Ireland that I'm happy with. I'm sure none of our listeners listening to me waffling on now aren't happy with it either. But of course we can do better. We can do better. But we need to sit down and ask ourselves honest, difficult questions at times and be realistic, but dare to dream. Lovely. I'm definitely coming to the end now because just for our listeners. Before like, you do, can I just have one request? Yeah. Could we have another Brexit question? <laughs> I just want to say to our listeners, well, this man is dealing with me now. I'm just looking at the clock here. This man is dealing with me close to six or seven hours and he is on his last legs. So I'm not going to keep much longer. I will just touch on one thing that you've said there, just because I'd like to put this on record at some point. Another big myth is that we can't afford it idea. Now, I know that from the ground up is faulty because it's us subsuming you onto us, which I hate that paradigm anyway. But the we can't afford it myth 
And there's, I'm not an economist, I'm barely a comedian, but I would urge people to listen to various economists who have lots to say on that, because I think that's actually the biggest myth. I did a little project for RT recently, an RT pilot, which obviously never got to air because I was involved in it. But um, I spoke to people on the street in Cork and the, the way that they would dismiss the questions about a United Ireland, generally speaking, would be, I should look, boy, we can't afford it. We fucking can't afford that. And I would... Britain gives them billions, we can't afford that. And I just think it's interesting to note that the average guy on the street, if they say no to it, it's never no in terms of like, no, we couldn't be bothered with them. It's we can't afford them. So I think that's a barrier that we need to we need to get over. Has that ever come up in conversations that you've had with people in the South? They say that we can't afford it. I'll give you a succinct answer. <laughs> Can we afford not to make it happen? Correct. End of conversation as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. People that have that mindset tag with the greatest of respect, such a narrow blinkered way of looking at the world mm. I'm sorry this dare to dream thing for me like it's so important in life never mind talking about our futures here we're, we're standing in the north like beggars with our hands out waiting for subvention every year from the London government see if I was somebody living in England I would be asking my government serious questions what are we doing with our NHS with my local school maybe in Manchester Birmingham London wherever Maybe, you know, falling down around us, potholes in the roads, our children, the whole Marcus Rashford thing, you know, mm-hmm. but, you know, through COVID and feeding our kids and whatnot, you know, we're all no different from each other. But what, and under God, would I want to be if I was an English, somebody living in London paying me taxes and happy for my money to go over to six counties in Ireland? Honestly, but just I wouldn't be happy. <laughs> so I think we'd all be happy, basically, asking me, and England could keep their money, make their country a little bit better. <laughs> We have got 32 counties here. I think we're intelligent enough nowadays to make our own economy work. Plus, let's be honest too, if this does happen, when it happens, there would be a withdrawal period that uh, English mm. money would, um, for 10, 15 years. Yeah, faded out. There would obviously be European money. The Irish government's got maybe a few pounds still left if all their brown envelopes haven't been handed out this past <laughs> 20 years. Um, America might still have a few pounds prepared to throw her away but I'll always go back I've got faith in the Irish people being smart enough intelligent enough and have enough vision to be able to pave our own way What do you believe ultimately will be the constitutional consequences of Brexit for these islands? Well first and foremost Scotland India Ref 2 you did say islands so yeah. they're independent and for me when that happens that's the key the one. union effectively is broke it's dissolved can't have a union with one part of it, one leg missing. And put quite simply, Ireland's next. But I cannot see it happening prior to Scotland go. Purely based on the fact that they already had the Ref one, you know. So, But listen, I wish the union well um, on its journey, I do. Um, it's been fun, but I got it on. Nice. And what about our cousins in Wales? Just in your depiction, Scotland goes, Ireland reunifies... England and Wales are left with each other. Does Wales jumpers are pushed? It's beginning to sound like one of your sketches. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, I'm not going to be arrogant enough to try and speak on behalf of anybody from Wales. I'm sure the, the Welsh people will do what suits them best as long as I, neighbours, uh, and that includes my union's neighbours here, does what suits us best. That's my only concern. And I suppose there's a bit of a theme there. I let you get on with your business, folks. I'll get on with mine. Niall Keenan, thank you sincerely for your time and for showing me around your beautiful home. Been a pleasure. Thank you for the invitation.
Uh, good day, Maritatu and how you getting on yourself, guys? I don't know, would you agree? I found that very funny, interesting, and moving. Um, and I'm not saying this isn't my podcast that, I'm saying the guests would move you with their openness and honesty and willingness to share, like, deeply personal things. None more so than Niall Keenan there, I'm sure you'll agree. And, you know, like, for him to have gone through what he did and for him to be doing what he's doing now, I think is just extraordinary at this point I would like to reiterate because as you know I love repeating myself what I said at the end of the Martine Anderson interview which is I would love to speak to loyalists about their trauma now I know some people are listening to this going would this clown ever pull himself out of his own arse what is he why would they talk to him like and the, the honest answer is guys I don't know but I just feel like I've been privileged to sit with nationalists and republicans and hear about some of their trauma and our our listeners have heard that as well but I'm very aware that republicans and nationalists have no monopoly on the pain and so I feel that many loyalists particularly from a paramilitary background would have a story to tell. That's it, stop going on about it now guys and so now we come to the point of the podcast where you just be scarlet for the doubting Thomas's maz. A lot of people said I wouldn't be able to do it. You never get a unionist to talk to you. Here's three in a row, bye. Bet you wish you were here.